Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 103. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Now, more than any other time, now is a time to stay vigilant. The night of January 7th into the very early morning hours of my birthday, January 8th, I spent at the hospital comforting the family of our fallen officer and met with the medical examiner's office prior to working with fellow officers to facilitate a motorcade to transport Officer Sicknick from the hospital. Of the multitude of events I've worked in my nearly 19-year career in the department, this was by far the worst of the worst. We could have had 10 times the amount of people working with us, and I still believe the battle would have been just as devastating. As an American and as an Army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. I'm sad to see the unnecessary loss of life. I'm sad to see the impact this has had on Capitol Police officers. And I'm sad to see the impact this has had on our agency and on our country. We're all sad. We should all be outraged. That's the voice of Capitol Hill Police Captain Carnesha Mendoza, an Army veteran who worked at the Pentagon on 9-11, the mother of a 10-year-old son, a hero of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And during the second impeachment of Donald Trump, America never heard from Captain Mendoza. She's one of the many witnesses the country could have heard from on that massive impeachment stage. But the Republicans opposed witnesses, and the Democrats complied. And we never got to hear from Captain Mendoza or any of the other heroes that held off the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But this week, her voice was heard. Captain Mendoza was one of five people who testified before the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committees this week. It was Captain Mendoza, along with the Metropolitan Police Acting Chief Robert Conti, former House Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Irving, former Senate Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stenger, and former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. This was the first time the American public heard from any of them. The powerful hearing was the first in a series of oversight efforts expected to be coming in Washington to identify all the intelligence gathering and leadership failures that happened leading up to the disgusting attack on our Capitol. A disgusting attack that Captain Mendoza described in vivid detail. An attack that she, a combat veteran, repeatedly called a battle a battle that left her with chemical burns on her face due to gas canisters thrown by attackers. A battle that almost broke her arm. A battle that almost broke her spirit. But it didn't. When I say look for the helpers, I mean helpers like Captain Mendoza. And she's not broken. She's continuing to serve and issuing a warning to you, to me, to all of us. I've received various awards from the Army and the Capitol Police to include an award for recovery efforts during the Pentagon attack. Unfortunately, I didn't save any lives, but there are certain lessons that always stuck with me after 9-11. One of those lessons is knowing the unthinkable is always possible, so be ready. Be ready. 
The unthinkable is always possible. So be ready. That's the lesson learned from Captain Mendoza, from 9-11, from January 6th, and from the last four years. Be ready. Be ready for a president to try to overthrow our government. Be ready for a pandemic that shuts down everything and takes the lives of over 500,000 Americans. Be ready for your fellow Americans to storm the Capitol and attack our own police. Be ready for your entire state to lose power for days. Be ready to work from home for a full year. Or be ready to not be able to work from home for a full year. Be ready to get sick. Be ready. Be ready for the pandemic not to end in the spring. Be ready for the vaccine to be delayed. Be ready for Joe Biden to stumble. Be ready for Republicans and Democrats to continue to battle. Be ready for things to continue to be hard. But be ready to answer the call. Be ready to continue our fight for our country and its future. Be ready to be a helper. Be ready. Because if you're always ready, you don't have to get ready. And now is a time to stay ready and to stay vigilant. Even when we're all ready for this shit to be over, especially when we're all ready for this shit to be over, because we're all tired, we're all spent, and we've all had enough of masks and no hugs and eating outside and washing our damn hands until our skin peels off, we're all ready to be done with all this shit. We're all ready for a magic bullet that will open up the restaurants and schools and businesses and basketball games and make everyone get along and hold hands at one giant, happy, national Jimmy Buffett show of a celebration. We're all ready for our VC day, our victory over the coronavirus day. Last March, almost a year ago, back in episode 51, I talked about our need to be ready to hang in there and to prepare for long, hard days ahead. I wish I was wrong, but I wasn't. And we're still in it. This is the long, hard, painful slog. And now, more than ever, we need to think about that day, a day that might be long into the future, a day that would be our VC day, like VJ Day after World War II, a day of triumph, a day of celebration, a day of new beginnings. But we're still in for some days of struggle ahead. And we need to be ready. There are no magic bullets. And there may be new tidal waves for us to face. But as we say in the Army, we all bond in the suck. And we have. And now, we finally have a new, sane, empathetic president. And we have each other, who continue to step up to serve as helpers and inspire others to do the same. Because we've endured, and we will rally. We will have good days, and we'll have bad days. But one day, we'll be back together in ballparks, and on beaches, and at parades. And one day, we will have our VJ Day, or our VC Day, our victory over the coronavirus day. We'll face our fears. We'll mourn our losses, but we'll rally our nation and our world, and we will celebrate life and commit yet again to stay ready for whatever comes next. Because something always comes next. Politicians rarely tell you that, 
but it's the truth. There will be other fights to fight. And if we work together, we'll be stronger when they come. And we'll be ready. But until then, we're still in the suck. And we all bond in that suck. And in this episode, we'll bond in the suck and find ways to move forward together. And key to that is finding ways to stay warm, to keep the fire going, even when it's coldest, to stay focused, even when it's hardest, to hang on, even when it's roughest, to keep the faith, and to stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. February is almost over. The attack on the Capitol was over a month ago, and the election was over three months ago. But the quest for accountability, the need for justice, and the requirement for vigilance continues. And the hardest, coldest winter of our lives continues. But we can see the spring starting to emerge. So this is a time for vigilance and for leadership and for independence. We kicked off this season two and our second 100 episodes with a new name for this show. And the response continues to be overwhelmingly positive. This is a time for independence in all its forms, in politics, in media, in business, in communities, and it's growing by the week all across America. More and more, Americans are demanding more. More and more Americans are challenging and even rejecting both parties. And more and more, they're rejecting Trump and the attack on the Capitol, and the Republican Party especially. Every week, more and more Americans are dropping the flag of a candidate or a party and picking back up the American flag and flying a new flag of independence. And this week, that included a powerful statement from a little-known state senator in Arkansas, a man named Jim Hendren. He spoke for thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, and it went viral. I heard people demonized as rapists and murderers. I watched the former president actively fan the flame of racist rhetoric, make fun of those with disabilities, bully his enemies, and talk about women in ways that would never be tolerated in my home or business. I've seen our politics become a winner-take-all game that leaves too many folks losing. And I ask myself, how can I honor my oath to serve all of the people of Arkansas when we're only listening to a louder and smaller base? Sadly, what I see is a broken system that needs to be fixed. It's time for change and some tough decisions. Today, I'm announcing that I'm leaving the Republican Party and will continue to serve the people of Arkansas as an independent with no party affiliation. This comes after many sleepless nights, a lot of serious consideration, and it comes with sadness and disappointment. But it's clear-eyed. I'm making this decision because my commitment to our state and our country is greater than loyalty to any political party. Jim Hendren has left the Republican Party. But he's not joining the Democratic Party. He's declaring himself an independent, unaffiliated, with no party at all. And he's not alone. Another new poll was released this week. This one by The Economist and YouGov. And it showed really bad news for Republicans. Before the election in November, a monthly average of 42% of voters called themselves Republicans. Today, only 37% do. Only 37% of voters 
will claim the Republican Party. The numbers dropped by 5% in just a few months, and it continues to drop. Trump's behavior after the election and the Capitol attack undoubtedly have accelerated the trend. So more and more, Americans are leaving the Republican Party, but they're not going to the Democrats. And as I shared in the last episode, America's thirst for a third party has never been greater in Gallup's two decades of polling on the subject. And all across America, more and more first-time voters are choosing no party at all. So in the days to come, as the political game of post-election 52 pickup continues, we'll see a fact proven month after month in 2021 and beyond. The two parties continue to fail America. The Republicans continue to fail much more miserably, much more disgustingly, much more egregiously. See the example of Senator Ted Cruz deciding to jump on a plane to Cancun while his entire state froze to death. Ted Cruz embodies the implosion and disgusting disintegration of the modern Republican Party. Texas, I love y'all. Deeply. You gotta finally do something about Ted Cruz. You are too great of a state to have someone so small representing you. It's embarrassing for all Americans, but especially for you. And meanwhile, here in New York, the shine of Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo has worn off pretty quickly. And nobody turns more quickly if a leader stumbles than New Yorkers. Just ask anyone who's ever played quarterback for the Jets or the Giants in the last 60 years or so. And now, Governor Andrew Cuomo is in real trouble as questions emerge about his administration's transparency about COVID deaths in nursing homes. This, while in the same state, mayor disaster himself, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, continues to bring shame upon Democrats everywhere. So yes, every week there will be new examples of why so many in America are sick of both parties. And yes, of course they're not the same. But they're also not enough. And that's why more and more Americans are choosing none of the above. And why more and more of us are talking with our party registration. And it's why more and more of us are independent Americans. New groundwork is being laid in America right now. And bricks were added in our last few episodes with Evan McMullen and Ken Feinberg. And in so many past episodes, with guests ranging from Sebastian Younger to Admiral Stravides to Mick Foley to Molly McHugh. And Arkansas Senator Jim Hendren is another independent brick added to a new foundation. And so is our guest coming up, Darren Walker. Darren will share a line in our conversation that really breaks it down, especially in times of crisis. You'll hear him talk about how partisanship doesn't get things done. Solving problems is not black and white. He says the work gets done in the gray. That's what he shares. And it's what we'll see and explore every week in this show. So get ready. Get ready for a new normal in America. In the same way a few years ago, we never could have imagined a world where we'd all wear masks on TV and everywhere we go. Many right now can't imagine a political landscape not dominated by two parties or a media landscape dominated by Fox and MSNBC. But that future's coming. So get ready. It's going to be painful for some, especially the ones who deny it. But those of us that are ready will be ready to embrace the change. And our country will be infinitely better for it. Our national security, 
our international reputation, our future as a nation, they all depend on it. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. That's the tagline of this show, and I hope for America, especially now. Vigilance is the price of freedom. And we have to continue to pay that price, even when we're tired, even when we've all had enough of this shit, even when we spent months of our lives lost on Zoom and disconnected from our loved ones. But it's the price we have to pay. But that's service. And service used to be the spirit of this country. And that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic and all the turmoil. More and more people are stepping up to serve. More and more people are stepping up to be helpers. More and more people are chipping in to lead. We haven't seen this level of involvement in service since World War II. And just like the fight against fascism in World War II, and the rationing, and the years of young lives spent overseas and supporting the war effort here at home, it'll be worth it. We will have our VC day. So keep the faith, stay strong, and stay ready. And find and share the hope. Because hope is the oxygen of democracy. That's the brilliant and timely motto of our guest in this episode. A leader who is a true helper. A leader who brings the light. A leader who is elevating and spreading hope. He's a super spreader of hope. Every day, lifting up others. And contrasting and combating Trump, the super spreader of stupid, and all his minions. Our guest in this episode is bringing hope daily. He's Darren Walker. And he's ready. Darren Walker is the president of the Mighty Ford Foundation with over $14 billion in assets. With America at a crossroads, our important, inspiring, and iconic guest in this episode is one of the most influential leaders in America. He rose from poverty and the very first class of Head Start in 1965 in Texas to leading one of the most powerful organizations on the planet. A true helper, a patriot, and a conscience for America. Darren's been named to Time's 100 Most Influential People, Rolling Stone's 25 People Shaping the Future, Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business, Ebony's Power 100, and Out Magazine's Power 50. Under Darren's leadership, the Ford Foundation became the first nonprofit in history to issue a billion-dollar designated social bond to strengthen and stabilize nonprofit organizations in the wake of the pandemic. For over 80 years, the Ford Foundation has focused on a mission to reduce poverty and injustice, strengthen democratic values, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement. And that mission has never been more urgent. With our country facing a daunting collision of mammoth challenges, Darren's attacking them more than almost any other leader in America. He joins us on Independent Americans for an insightful and empowering conversation about the fragile state of affairs in America. And he illuminates the impact of COVID, inequality, and extremism on our nation's most vulnerable. He breaks down the situation in Texas, his home, and what it reveals about America. He shares his story of overcoming incredible odds and why he believes deeply in the spirit of America. And, as in every pod, we get insights into his leadership lessons learned, his favorite drink, 
and the first car he ever owned. I also asked him if he'd ever consider running against Ted Cruz for Senate in Texas. Darren Walker is uniting and empowering Americans in innovative and bold ways and tackling the world's biggest problems from climate change to racial justice to the pandemic. And he's a uniquely independent leader to guide us forward. As we all trudge through the final weeks of winter and toward a more vaccinated country, this conversation will warm your heart and lighten your spirits and get you ready for better days. America's more divided than ever before. But I'll continue to bring the five eyes: independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. This is another compelling conversation to guide you through these hard times and help you see new paths to the future. A future that will require sacrifice. But it's also a time to have hope, to think about the future, to understand that if we hang in there, the price we pay will be worth it for us for our future, for our country, for our planet, for our grandchildren, and for all that come after us. So get ready. This is a time to be hopeful. There are still rough days ahead, but the roughest may now finally be behind us. And we need to get ready for better days. The removal of Donald Trump and the introduction of the vaccine have been like an oxygen mask on the face of America's dying body politic. We were so close to the brink, but our vigilance brought us back. We pulled our dying patient away from the edge. And while we're not out of the woods yet, we've removed some of the bullets and some of the shrapnel, and we've stopped most of the bleeding. Hope is the oxygen of democracy. And as spring approaches, that oxygen is starting to finally flow into the lungs of America once again. The path to recovery is going to be long. But we're on the mend. And so get ready. Brighter days are ahead. These are the hardest weeks, just before things start to turn. So welcome to a dose of hope that'll give you a push to the other side of the ice. Welcome to an adrenaline shot in the heart to keep you fighting forward. A better future. It's coming. So get ready. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 103. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. These are interesting, precarious, important times. And I am very humbled, uh, ecstatic, happy to have one of, I think, the most important leaders in our country at all times, but especially right now, a man I've been honored to know. Uh, I've been privileged to watch his leadership uh, grow and expand and evolve. And, and someone who just brings positivity and happiness and light to our country every single day. And I'm very happy that he'll be able to do that to this episode. The great and powerful Darren Walker joins us today on Independent Americans. Welcome, my friend. Paul, it's great to be with you. And, you know, it is you who bring light. Uh, and it is you who inspire me. And I'm uh, 
uh, honored to be on your program. I think you're you're a true conscience for this country, Darren, and you're a, a true thought leader. And the work that you do, I think, is is such a manifestation of of your energy and your vision and the vision of so many other important leaders. Um, and as I see, I wish we could do this in person, but but obviously we can't. You have, I think, the coolest office I've ever been in. I mean, I've been in some cool offices. I've been in the Oval Office. And I think your office might be the coolest physical office I've ever been in because it's so deep with history and, and personal experiences and interesting things. Can you just share people with people, you know, where you are uh, physically, what your office is all about? And how are you in this pandemic? We're all struggling with a lot right now. But how are you and the people close to you doing, Darren? Well, thank you, Paul. You know, you have been to the Ford Foundation's headquarters, my office there which is uh, really special. Uh, I'm actually at home and uh, I am in uh, the library, which is why there are all these books behind me. And I feel really lucky to be uh, at home and to work uh, since last March, March 8th. I have been uh, working from home. I live here on the east side in New York. Um, And I think uh, I am doing all things considered, very well. I mean, Paul, when you consider the state of our country and particularly the state of many of our families who have suffered uh, the numbers of people, uh, 500 plus thousand of our fellow citizens have died. And that means not only the the 500,000 people we lost, but each one of them had a family. Each one of them was part of a community, worked somewhere, uh, probably worshiped somewhere, um, had uh, parents or children. And so our country in this moment is grieving. And so for me and you who are healthy, who are able to work remotely. Uh, we uh, aren't worried that we're out of work or, or waiting for um, a, uh, a government uh, support uh, to help us. We're, we are blessed. And so our challenges uh, in our personal lives, while they may be real to us and material, in the total scheme of things, when we think about our fellow citizens, uh, we're blessed. And I feel that every day. And I feel that blessing because I was born in this country. I feel that blessing. And I feel uh, that blessing because I get to every day do the work that we do at the Ford Foundation. Mm. I mean, your, your life is, is a demonstration in, in leadership, in my view, Darren. And you, we talk a lot on the show about the Mr. Rogers line, look for the helpers. And I think you, maybe more than anybody I've had on, on this program, is, is a true helper. And even, you know, in preparing for this conversation, I saw that you may not be at the headquarters now, but did I read correctly that the, the, the Ford Foundation headquarters is going to be a, a COVID uh, vaccination site at some point or may already be already? It has been now for uh, three weeks and it will continue to be well into the summer. Uh, we offered uh, the facility uh, and the city is using it. And I received so many uh, messages from people who are in the building getting a vaccination. So we're a helper. But Paul, I think if most of us look back on our lives, we, we are helpers because we know that we wouldn't be where we are without 
those who helped us. Mm. And growing up poor in a small town in Texas, uh, I was helped by so many people who put me on um, that mobility escalator, even though I was poor and black and single mom and all of the data and the statistics that go with that. Uh, I had people helping me. I had good public schools. I had a great Head Start teacher. I had a counselor who said, uh, don't settle for this school. You should go to the University of Texas in Austin. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know there aren't very many African-Americans who go there, but you should go there. Uh, and when I came to New York at my law firm, at the bank where I worked, the minister at the church where I worked later, each of them helped me. Each of them gave me counsel, wisdom, advice, um, and it's made it possible for me to at least in a material sense uh, be deemed a success and it's made it possible for me to live a life that a kid who started life in a charity hospital in rural Louisiana could never have probably imagined. Mm. Darren, the, you, you talked about um, folks on, uh, helping you kind of on an, on an escalator. I feel like the, the Ford Foundation is like a skyscraper of escalators for people all across this country and all around the world. Um, but you're also, you know, an ambassador. And I feel like when I walk through the headquarters, when we could still do that, there was a really honest presentation of our country's history. Um, good, bad, ugly, the, the, the stuff we had to overcome. But there's also a real sense of, of, of in your office and in your home of your journey, your personal journey. You're a man of the arts and, and of, of passions and of interests. You've been all around the world. Um, but I also saw before we, we, we started, you took a sip of something. So I asked this of all of our guests. Darren Walker, what is your drink of choice? Well, I am literally today uh, drinking some Diet Pepsi. <laughs> uh, and uh, I need caffeine and I need to uh, get through uh, the nine Zoom calls uh, that, and sessions that I have. But, you know, Paul, when you talk about our country's history, I want to just remind us of, uh, yes, we show our history in this country, which is a history of, of noble valiant uh, aspirations that our founding fathers uh, put in place. Uh, there is never, there has never been a constitution as powerful, as democratic as the United States Constitution. Even though it is flawed, there has never been. There uh, has never been, I don't believe, a system that has the potential to deliver uh, justice, deliver opportunity, equality, like the system that we have in the United States. And it's why I cherish uh, our uh, system of government. It's why I uh, believe that in spite of the flaws of our founders, they left us with the tools to fix the problems that they did not, would not fix. Of course, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton and all of the others, Madison, Washington, they all regretted, for example, slavery. Mm. They wrote that they 
knew that uh, it could not uh, sustain itself and America ever be fully the country it was meant to be. Um, but they left the mechanism to fix that problem. And in successive generations in this country, we have committed ourselves to that. Now, that's not to say that we have uh, never not had underneath the veneer of civility, racism, bias, prejudice. It has absolutely been a part of our narrative. But what I truly believe from my own journey in this country is that the goodness of the American people prevail. Mm. That most Americans don't wake up every day and say, I want to be a racist today. I want to be a sexist today. I want to exclude somebody today. That is not the way most... We have systems that are imbued with racism. Absolutely, we do. Our criminal justice system is but one example. But we are, as a people, we have the potential to do something truly extraordinary that's never been done in the history of this planet. A nation of immigrants, a nation of formerly enslaved people, a nation of indigenous people, all living together, governed by a system of democracy where each of them has a vote. And for me, that idea is a powerful idea that sustains me and gives me confidence that in spite of whatever uh, challenge of the moment, and we have some right now in our country, uh, I'm hopeful for America. And my belief in this country and its potential has never been stronger. Mm. I think that belief, Darren, is, is contagious. That's part of why I'm, I'm so thankful to have you on the program now. When I think we're deep in you know, the hardest month of the winter, folks are, are grinding it out. They're waiting for the vaccine. And I want to unpack, you know, COVID, extremism, poverty, a couple of the things that you've been really prioritizing within your work. But I want to stay in that way, way back machine in Texas or when you were growing up and ask you, Darren Walker, when you were growing up or, or when maybe later in life, whenever it was, what was your very first car? Well, uh, my first car was a very used uh, 1972 Mercury Capri. And it was uh, a car that uh, my mother and I together, putting our pennies together, were able to buy. Um, it didn't last long uh, because it was not a good car. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was my first car. So that is in indeed the answer. And, and what color was it, Darren? It was avocado green. Ooh. A very could, 1970s color, don't you think? It, that could be extraordinary or terrible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't born in 1972, so you no. wouldn't know. Almost. Uh, almost. You wouldn't know. 
I was born in I was born in '75, but it's also fun, you know, to ask you, uh, you know, uh, a, a car question. Uh, I, I know there's not a direct connection between the, the Ford Motor Company and, and Ford Foundation, but you know, asking you uh, your very first car is a fascinating insight into you and 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 your life trajectory. Um, but I want I want to stay on on Texas if I can for a minute because it's obviously a focal point for the country, maybe for the world now. Um, can you break down what we should um, take away from what's happening in Texas right now? Um, you know, it, it feels like Texas is Katrina and, and it feels like we continue to have these, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better framework, Katrina type moments. Um, but now it also feels like the country moves past them more quickly than ever before. But, you know, having grown up in Texas, but also having this global perspective and being able to influence so many of the factors that are unfolding there. What do you want folks to, to take away from what's happening in Texas right now? Well, Texas has always seen itself as a separate part of America. Uh, in fact, Texas is the only state that was a nation first, was a nation before it became a state. And Texans have always been proudly independent. I think the challenge as time has passed and we've come into the 21st century is that uh, we have in our country uh, ideologies that have made it hard for us to find common ground, common solutions, and to see things through a, a, a sort of a gray dynamic, right? I mean, it black or white. Mm -hmm. I mean, that the way in which we think about our problems, we think about our politics is oppositionally. And that, and that you know, you're either over here in the black space or you're in the white space. And, and that's not a racial dynamic, that's just an oppositional. And what actually happens is most problems get solved in the gray space. Mm -hmm. Most people's beliefs are in the gray space. Most people don't, believe extremes of either black and white. Most people believe, and so in Texas, we have seen, in my view, an ideological framework when words like freedom and independence from um, the federal government, uh, these ideas become sort of toxic notions, right? And, and I, I deeply regret that for Texas because mm -hmm. I don't think that that kind of ideology-based governance is going to serve the citizenry well in the long term. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we all suffer from that, left and right. So this is, you know, we have intolerance on the right, we have intolerance on the left. So it's not as if I'm talking about, but I am saying, though, that that ideology, when someone says, well, we won't do something because the federal government will be involved. I understand when people want to not have additional layers of bureaucracy or oversight or monitoring or whatever. On the other hand, to some of us, when you say the federal government, it was the federal government that forced states to allow young kids like me to go to public schools. Mm. Uh, I would not have attended the University of Texas at Austin, but it 
we're not for the federal government requiring the state to change to let smart young black kids, just like they let smart young white kids go to Austin, Texas to go to college. Mm -hmm. So when these these ideological sort of um, uh, signatures uh, have different meaning to different people. There's a powerful insight into into what you described there, Darren, that we've been exploring on this show when you said things get done in the gray space. Right. And, and part of why we, we are exploring what it means to be independent on this show now and in, in, in our next season is because so many people in this country are, are fed up with only two options politically and with extremes that seem to be dominating our conversations and the lack of the ability to solve problems. And maybe Texas has become a case study on that. And, I, and I've been watching this unfold. And I feel like, you know, Texas is too great of a state to have one, someone so small as Ted Cruz representing them. So my, my question is, you know, would you ever run? You're the kind of person that could bring people together in Texas and beyond. You, you know, you're such a success story and, 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 and a powerful collaborator. You bring people together and solve things. You seem like exactly the kind of person that Texas needs right now to operate in the gray space. Would you ever consider it? No, I'm not. Um, I don't have the temperament to <laughs> Uh, run for public office. I do believe, though, that there is no higher calling, mm. no more valiant mission uh, of of honor, of valor than public service. Mm. I think you know, and I'm I'm the old fashioned um, Kennedy esque view of of service, and I worry all that we don't talk enough about service. Today, and obviously, as a military veteran, you understand service. Mm. But service has has moved out of the mainstream lexicon of, particularly of elites. And in the past, that idea of service, whether you were a D or an R, whether you were a Kennedy or a Bush, service was at the center of your life and your life's work. And it worries me that I don't hear uh, our uh, most prominent, our most successful people talking about service as a part of their mission, their life's work. Mm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I, I wonder, Darren, as we explore this topic, you know, the, I, I would love to see you run for anything. Um, you know, as we, <laughs> you and my mother are the only two people I think who would see, who would vote for me. I'm going to, I'm okay. going to challenge you on that. Like I've challenged a number of people on this program. You're exactly the kind of person that we need in public service because folks like you are so rare. And as we record this, you know, a uh, friend of this show, my friend and, and someone I know, you know, Wes Moore has now publicly said he's considering, you know, running for governor in Maryland. Um, there are a lot of folks from philanthropy that have been solving problems and haven't really been making the jump from philanthropy or activism or advocacy into politics. In another world, you know, AOC just raised $3 million for Texas. You know, she could have run, been an executive director at a nonprofit, uh, you know, an Ashoka fellow, all the other things that you and I operate around. So I see this moment for philanthropy and philanthropic leaders um, that maybe will elevate some of these leaders and, and, and issue a call for them to serve. But can you break down on the macro? Um, you know, Ford Foundation, I don't know, 
over $10 billion, $14 billion. You guys are pumping out hundreds of millions of dollars. You're a thought leader. You're really viewed as, as an elite class for philanthropy. Has philanthropy ever in our lives faced uh, this magnitude of compounded challenges at the same time? Can you frame it up uh, with COVID, with the rise of extremism, with poverty, with inequality, with the black, all of it hitting at the same time and, and the need so great as things like a power outage hits an entire state. It seems like the hits just keep on coming. It, it, has there ever been a moment that philanthropy has faced like we're facing now? And, and how do you expect philanthropy and how will you lead philanthropy in responding to it? Well, I think philanthropy in this country is practiced quite broadly. It's not just the Fords and Rockefeller foundations. Uh, it is, it's our churches, it's our synagogues, it's our mosques, it's our community centers, it's the Lions Club, it's mm. the Elks Club, it's all of these groups. Those are centers of philanthropy. And we see a robust, uh, uh, I think, fundraising efforts, robust philanthropy going on at the community level, at the grassroots level. As far as organized philanthropy, the, the Fords and Gateses of the world, we have work to do, and, and it is true. We have, we have two vectors that are challenges. One, externally, which is we have never faced the severity and acuteness of crises, uh, as you just enumerated. And so the draw on the resources mm. has never been greater. Mm. And so we've got to put money out the door to groups who are dealing with everything from increased food insecurity to arts organizations being closed down because people won't go to theaters and the artists have to get paid, to the challenge of COVID and uh, the healthcare crisis. All of these issues, not to mention climate change, mm -hmm. are demanding more of philanthropy. And then the second vector internally, uh, more is being, um, we are being challenged as a sector, right? Of elite institutions sitting on aggregates of billions of dollars and the public asking, what are you doing to, to help? What are you doing to make a difference? And so these two vectors are uh, propelling uh, and, and putting behind uh, philanthropy pressures that we have never faced. And I think uh, actually it's a good thing that these pressures uh, are on us and we have to be prepared to be accountable, to demonstrate our impact, to tell the stories. Uh, and it may not be that all the stories that we tell are stories that everyone wants to hear. Um, not, I think people like hearing the stories of the Ford Foundation supporting the food pantries supporting um, the uh, vaccination uh, centers and the direct human services. Um, others may not like the fact that groups we support are bringing lawsuits to ensure that the barriers to voting when they're erected, that they're challenged in the mm -hmm. courts because we believe that every American should vote. 
And therefore, we support those organizations who are challenging states that put up barriers. And so there is a range of things that we are doing. And we, with our now uh, $15 billion endowment, this year are giving away well over a billion dollars that will address uh, not only in the U.S., but internationally, a number of areas uh, from our work in in the arts and culture to our work uh, around uh, technology, the public interest, uh, the future of work and workers, a very important uh, piece for us, uh, getting more civic engagement in this country, uh, getting more Americans to engage in the public square, uh, a very important uh, uh, work, mass incarceration, ending mass incarceration. Um, these are all priorities for us. Mm. Darren, you and, and the Ford Foundation have always been ahead of the curve. And, and I, I, you know, at, you, you supported uh, our work at IAVA. You supported so many other um, critical advocates. And I think that's an important differentiation that I saw and I see now is that you're willing to support advocacy. Some foundations, some philanthropists won't. And we're at this time where, you know, you could put out a billion dollars into the country, um, but advocates can 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 move government to the point where a hundred billion dollars is going to the VA in a new COVID relief package. So there's a scale that that in this country only government can really reach, and the confluence of you know your leadership as kind of fuel injection and the advocates and the pressure and the crisis of the moment may be compounded with this sense from from some of the elite that they've been kind of chilling while the rest of the country has been getting hammered. Nobody's had it easy, but comparatively, you know, there's a lot of folks sitting on money and, and this crisis may motivate them. So there's an opportunity for some moonshots here, right? So for, for once in a generation shots that we can take, um, you know, we don't want to waste a, a crisis as an opportunity, but there's also this underlying threat to our democracy, to our civil union, uh, to our now national security. That is extremism, white nationalism, the Proud Boys and others. You wrote a very powerful piece about that, and we've covered it at length on this show. Uh, I continue to see this as, as an American insurgency, as someone who fought an insurgency overseas. There are many parallels here. But can you frame up in the context of all the other stuff um, how you place that in the overall priorities of of threats and challenges that we face as a country? Well, I think there is no doubt that uh, democracy is a threat to white supremacy. And what I mean by that is not the other way around. Actually, the more Americans who participate in our democratic processes and practices and institutions, the less likely it is that white supremacists, that white nationalists can prevail. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the reason um, there is such resistance to uh, having more Americans uh, participate in our democracy is the sense that it will become more diverse. Mm. And some see that as a threat when in fact I see that as the actual, the ultimate realization of the American experiment. And I think uh, for me, I know that we have always had a, uh, a strand, a stain, a strain, uh, 
of of this kind of thinking, uh, I'm reminded that when the the constitutional conventions in the South after the Civil War were gathered, I mean, literally in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, they said things at the convention, we are here to make white supremacy the law of our state. I mean, that's in the record. And so I'm not naive. You know, this this has been with us. Um, but what has kept that at bay has been, I, be- I believe I always return to the goodness and the belief that this isn't America and this cannot prevail. And I know that for us at Ford, uh, we believe in this country and its potential. I believe in this country and its potential. And we support those who believe and we support advocacy for the reasons you say. We support advocacy so that we can have not that the Ford Foundation can replace government because we can't. No foundation, no philanthropy, even in the aggregate can or should replace our government. But we can support those who are seeking to bring the voices of people who are often not included, like veterans, for example, who are often marginalized in policymaking, in uh, the conversations about what and who gets prioritized. Um, And so it's why we support efforts um, like IVF, because you are on behalf of veterans, uh, bringing forward perspectives and placing them front and center so that policymakers cannot look the other way, Mm. so that those who run the VA and the various apparatuses that uh, control the lives of, in some ways, of of veterans, uh, that they are held to account to Mm. deliver. Mm. Uh, and and we believe that they should be held to account to deliver mm. because veterans have delivered for America. And yeah. so America they, should be held to account to deliver for veterans. They have. And, and you know, we've explored it in the show. And I think the country is starting to unpack that there's, you know, they're a powerful community, but they're also, you know, ripe to be radicalized, you know, for, for you know, something like one in five of the attackers in the Capitol were, were prior service or had served in uniform. And I, you know, wrote a piece for CNN with. Um, yes. With, with Amy about the need for us to clean up our own house and to recognize that we were warned about this. Many of us have warned about this. When I went in to the army in 1998 and up until a year ago, you could fly a Confederate flag in the barracks that was allowed. So there are, you know, uh, systemic challenges that need to be addressed immediately to overcome the institutionalized racism that exists in the military and allow some of this to thrive. But on the ground, you know, whether it's you guys helping people get the COVID vaccine or us trying to change hearts and minds, we've got to, you know, reach these folks that feel disconnected Absolutely. from society. And they're not Absolutely. just veterans. There's so and many not treat folks them. That, yeah. Yeah. And not treat them uh, and not otherize them, yeah. which is the way veterans often feel. Yep. Yep. Right? And yep. and again, when you when we get back to the idea of service and the most noble and highest calling. I believe that real challenge is that veterans 
are often talked about as vulnerable populations. I find this term very patronizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Veterans are often targeted populations. They are targeted by predatory lenders. Mm -hmm. They are targeted by uh, private um, educational institutions that know they can make money off of veterans because the the government will pay. Uh, They are targeted by white supremacists and nationalists who know that they have vulnerabilities around race and around their own status in society and whether or not they are appreciated, whether or not they're being left behind, whether or not they and their kids will have opportunity in America. And so, you know, I don't, I think we need to recognize how that targeting happens and what we need to do to intervene to support the anti-targeting work, right? So no private predatory lenders, you can't profit off of veterans. And so let's put in place the policies that ensure that veterans don't end up with a disproportionate amount of college debt Mm -hmm. because you can rip them off because, you know, the government will ultimately pay for it when they default, their credit is bad and they're in bankruptcy. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've 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 got it. And I think they are one of many powerful populations in this country. And, you know, Trump saw it early. Trump Trump saw the political power, the social power, the communications power of communities like veterans. And he talked to them early. He talked to them specifically. He talked to them often. And now we've got to counter that message. But there's also whether they're veterans, whether they're white, black, you know, all across this country. Darren, there are a lot of folks that are that are frustrated and, and are angry. Um, you deal with some of the hardest, thorniest issues that this country faces, and you're human. You have emotion. So, so Darren Walker, what makes you angry? Well, let me start by saying, Paul, the people you described, for the most part, have a reason to be angry. Mm. So let me be really clear. Yeah. Their anger is not misplaced. They aren't bad people because they are angry because they see economic mobility slipping away. They see jobs disappearing. They see the kind of uh, union uh, wage and benefits for the jobs they might have gotten when they return home to get a job in the private sector. Those jobs are gone. And they are rightfully angry. Mm-hmm. What makes me angry is seeing how they are exploited by the very elites who are benefiting from the problem we've diagnosed. And and so what makes me angry is when I hear a working class uh, veteran who is barely making ends meet argue that we don't need uh, whatever the government policy may be, because if we do that, it's going to kill jobs. Or it means that somebody's going to get something and I'm not going to get, you know, a black person's going to get something and I'm not going to get mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. Right. When they when you hear them mouthing these things that they have been told through 
a mechanism of disinformation. Yep. That's what makes me angry because you think you see how people are exploited. And we know how con artists exploit people, whether you are at the highest office in the land or you're at, uh, on, on the street doing uh, these, these, these three-card money card tricks on tourists in, mm-hmm. in Manhattan. I mean, you see they, they are able to exploit the weaknesses of an individual. Mm-hmm. They know their pinpoints. They know how to get to them with a message, with mm-hmm. some words that pull them in and make them want to say, okay, I'll go, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we have seen that these last few years. And so I get angry because I think it is, it is such uh, an injustice when you see what's happening. And some of it, I, and I saw this fall, you know, growing up in, in, in Louisiana and Texas, I saw that. I, I saw the way elite whites pitted working class and poor uh, whites against blacks. Mm-hmm. And you, we saw that in the civil rights because the, 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 the messages was that integration was going to, it was going to, I mean, you know, the elites would put their kids in private schools and create another whole, but, but working class white. I mean, so it was the people who were closest economically who were going to be the most harmed. And that was the message from mm-hmm. elite whites. Right. And the same thing around economic interests. There was a, I don't know if you uh, have heard about Heather McGee's new book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather McGee is um, a, a, an activist who ran an organization, Demos, which you may know, mm-hmm. but she has done a book where she interviews workers and she interviewed workers at a plant in the South that was considering unionizing and the number of white workers who said they weren't going to unionize because the unions were going to benefit the black workers Mm -hmm. and that they saw this idea of, of unionizing through a racial lens, not through a lens of solidarity of people with with a collective interest, right? We're all frontline workers. We're all making whatever an hour. We all now can, but that the ideology of white supremacy or the way in which identity has been used to divide and conquer, they can't even see their collective interests with other workers mm. who have the same job titles, work in the same plant that they do, and are going to vote against their own interests because they feel that it will be something that won't work for them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the opportunity before Joe Biden right now to, 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 to capitalize on, I don't even know if that's the right word, but to, to figure out if he can be the messenger that, that, that helps people understand that there is an alternative way forward 
and, and his ability to talk to working class people and communicate his story and bring people together. But I think also just add light to contrast the heat to bring empathy and kindness and consideration and a lot of the things that we were taught in our homes and our churches and our schools, bringing back that that sense of leadership and light. And I hope, frankly, Darren, giving people real alternatives, like put down, you know, the gun and pick up a shovel, like give them jobs in the red state areas that are most inclined to go toward the Proud Boys. If you can give them an economic alternative and make them part of the future, you can shave them off and, and get them to join that future and be re- less resistant in fighting it. We've seen that in Iraq after the debathification, so exactly. many of the places around exactly. the world. But that that sense of light, I think, is important. You bring that sense of light and positivity. So the, the question I want to ask you, Darren, I ask of all of our guests, what makes you happy? You know, I uh, look out every day into this country and I feel hopeful. I feel happy. I feel encouraged in spite of this moment we live in. Because I know that my story would not have been possible in any other country but this country. Mm. And I know that there are people in this country who, like I did, boys and girls who have dreams. And there are people out there who see our work as helping to make this a country where dreams can continue to be realized, where the idea of dreaming is encouraged and that hope remains at the center of the American narrative because hope is the oxygen of democracy. And our job is to fill this world with as much air and oxygen as we can. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do, I hope, at the Ford Foundation. And that is what I know you do, Paul. And I know that our work together will not be in vain. I know that it will, in a small way, not changing the world, but in our own way, hopefully we are contributing to a better America, a more just, a more fair America. Hope is the oxygen of democracy. I saw that on your Twitter bio. I want to put it on T-shirts everywhere. I think, you know, we might have to reevaluate this, Darren. You know, maybe the, the Senate from Texas is not right for you and you need to run for president. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, you'd make a heck of a running mate. Well, I mean, Paul, I can I, assure you, I, just, I, I don't think I could get elected dog catcher. Well, maybe you, maybe you can get maybe you can get appointed, because I think that <laughs> the more the country hears from you and the more the world hears from you, I think it's very important that the world hear your voice, because yours is a voice of, of light and positivity and hope and patriotism. It's up to all of us now to reclaim patriotism in this moment after it's been hijacked. And I think that's a really important message that people are hearing of your, your, your story, your personal story, but also your commitment to service and your commitment to others and your leadership. And I'm really, really grateful for it. I wish we could be in person. We can't. So now I'm going to virtually present you some gifts. And Excellent. Your home office looks as cool as your, as your work office, I got to tell you. So maybe one day 
I can come join you and have another conversation. You can come, you can come and have, have, have a diet Pepsi here with me. That's it. We've got new independent American gear coming your way. As soon Please. As it's done. Excellent. Made by veterans. Um, Excellent. We, we have uncle nearest whiskey, which has an incredible story. If you don't know it, you're going to have to read up on it, but they are a great supporter of this show. Introduced I to us. I look by forward to, to drinking some of uncle nearest. Uh, uncle nearest, you know, taught Jack Daniels how, how to do his job. And, and there's much more Love to it, it. than that. But it's, I hope you can enjoy that uh, with Thank your, you, your Diet Pepsi or anything else. We've also got, in season one, we asked folks to choose colors of peeps. I'm not going to ask you to choose blue, yellow, or pink, but I'm going to send them to you. It's, it's a nostalgic part of this show. And Thank one final you, question friend. that divides all Americans. We do bring people together. We're a source of unity and positivity. But there's still one question that divides all Americans that I need you to sound off on. Darren Walker, if you had to choose, pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Why, Darren? Why? Because when you eat waffles and you're from the South, you also have fried chicken. Mm, a, a master stroke of ingenuity. I, that there is, is, that is the best like answer. Waffle and, waffles and chicken, Paul. You know that. that I do. That, that's one of the best parts about being in the South. That is a great American invention. And that is, a, that is the best waffle. I'm a pancakes guy, but that's the best waffles argument I think you can possibly make. <laughs> But we, we are so grateful for all the light you bring, all the positivity you bring. You are a guardian of our democracy right now and our values. And you are holding the line through some very, very hard years. And I just want to thank you for that service. Leadership is often about sacrifice. And you and all your colleagues at the Ford Foundation have sacrificed uh, and continue to lead by example. And I'm just so grateful for that and your example. You're someone that our kids can look up to and that every American can root for. So thank you for all your leadership and, and your service, my friend. Thank you, my friend. This has been great, great privilege, a great honor. And think about that run for Senate. They need a senator down there right now. <laughs> we have to do a hashtag, right? Darren for Texas. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, my friend. Stay vigilant. Hope is the oxygen of democracy. It's one of my favorite lines we've ever heard on this show. And our democracy has never needed that oxygen more than in the last few months. It's a powerful and timely message from our friend Darren Walker. So be a super spreader of hope. Spread it wherever you can. Whether it's news about the vaccine, or news about a baby being born, or plans you're making for when more of the country is back open again, spread the hope and keep the oxygen of our democracy flowing. Pass it on to others like contaminated COVID droplets at the Sturgis rally, because now's the time for us to be super spreaders of hope. Hope is the air we need, and we gotta keep breathing. So do it with me once again, come on. <sighs> nice. Especially in these final few weeks of winter, when so many are worn out, and so many want to give up, keep breathing in that oxygen and that hope and encourage others to do the same. It's another way to be a helper. Spread the light, the hope, and the good information. It's how we fight misinformation and conspiracy theories and extremists and enemies of the future and the virus. We can all be helpers, like Darren Walker, 
And just like Mr. Rogers told us about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. We salute all the helpers out there, especially all of you getting out the vaccine and all of you getting the vaccine and all of you working on the front lines and all of you helping in Texas and all across the country. And we salute the helpers at NASA who gave us all one big injection of hope this week. After seven months and 300 million miles, NASA landed the incredible rover, Perseverance, on Mars. Perseverance. It's the perfect name for what we all need right now. And it was amazing. And was more hope just when we needed it most. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. The rover is called Perseverance, and that's exactly what we all need right now. We salute all the super spreaders of hope at NASA and everywhere else in America. You're the helpers we need. Our thanks to all of you. And my thanks to all the helpers that made this episode possible, especially our guest, Darren Walker. Check out the Ford Foundation website. Read his writings and look for him on Twitter. You can also encourage him to run for Senate against Ted Cruz. But independent Americans are the future, and Darren Walker is a key part of it. He's inspiring and empowering millions all across this country, and he's a true helper. My thanks also to his amazing team, Juliana Woodley, Matt Cregan, and Robin Gibbons especially, and everyone at Ford that makes the world a better place every single day. You're all helpers. And thanks to all the helpers on the Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, and brilliant Bill Schultz. You're all always ready, and you continue to power all the work that we do. My thanks also to the helpers that are our fearless Patreon members. All our Patreon members. Independent Americans is on Patreon, and I want to salute all of you, especially our newest member, Joby Tapia. Just became a patron for just five bucks a month. Joby also won our guest the guest contest last week. Joby correctly guessed Ken Feinberg was the guest in our last episode. Every week, you can look for that contest on our social media on Wednesday night, the night before the show drops. I will post a mysterious image involving our next guest without identifying our guest. And you can guess the guest just like Joby did, and you can win a prize. And just like Joby, you can join our independent Americans community on Patreon. If you don't know Patreon, it's a way to be involved and to support us, support this work, and chip in what you can and help keep this show and the dispatches and everything else we do at Righteous Media coming. We've got more shows coming. They're getting close, folks, and I'm excited to share more. But until then, nobody is digging into the issues like we are, especially issues of war, conflict, veterans affairs, philanthropy, and much more. Be a part of what we're building. Please share the Patreon membership and chip in if you can. And if you like this episode, go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can subscribe for free and share. You can visit us on social media everywhere and check out the newly redesigned independentamericans.us. That's independentamericans.us. You can find the new social media handles on Instagram and Twitter as well. Big shout out to creative Chris Rosenthal for making that happen. And we're doing another special cocktail hour just for Patreon members only with me, 
coming up. I think we're going to do it on Friday, March 8th. So join us. Sign up on Patreon. Chip in just a couple bucks, and we will do a cocktail hour coming up Friday, March 8th. Uh, We'll have a drink. We'll have some special guests. We'll do some giveaways. I'll break down the news. We'll bring this community together, and we'll try to do those maybe once a month going forward. I hope you can join us. And my thanks to all our patrons that continue to power this work. And my massive thanks to my wife and my two boys, especially this week. We watched the Mars landing together. We crowded around a laptop and watched a robot land on Mars. It was amazing. It was me, the boys, and their almost 80-year-old grandmother, all united by the hope of discovery and perseverance. It was an injection of hope for all of us across three generations on a snowy day when we all needed it. And speaking of hope when we needed it, this weekend is my son River's second birthday. Happy birthday to him. What a year to have as the second year of your life on earth. But our little guy has been a source of light for us all. And he's been an injection of hope for our entire family and everyone who knows us. Been traveling these wide roads for so long. My heart's been far from you. 10,000 miles gone. Leon Bridges is from Texas. He's amazing. A brilliant artist. One of my favorite artists. Listen to everything he's ever done. And this song is about redemption. It's about having a chance to start over, no matter what's happened. It's about moving past the pain and the mistakes and starting again. And it's called River. When my son River was born, he gave us hope, tremendous hope. But on the same day he was born, My wife had severe internal bleeding during childbirth, and we almost lost her. One of the best days of my life was also one of the scariest, and also almost one of my worst. But we had hope, and lots of luck, and some amazing helpers in the medical unit, and my courageous wife, and my fiery son made it through. And for me, it's forever a reminder to keep on keeping on keep the hope and the faith that we can always start again, that we can always power through the tough times to brighter, better days. And as we all push through more and more of these difficult times, I'll remember that day, a day that was scarier than any day I ever had in combat overseas, and a day that's now not a celebration of one life, but of two, and a celebration of life overall, a day that was so dark but was pierced and will forever be remembered by the light and by the hope. Hope is the oxygen for our democracy, but hope is also the oxygen for life. And we all need a little more hope right now. So take a big, deep gulp of it and pass it on. Together, we'll stay ready and we'll get through this together. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. And we'll stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And with hope in our lungs and in our hearts, it's the path to better days. Days after the pandemic, 
Days after the storms, days after the pain and loss, and days that may even result in a post-war boom, just like after World War II. So root for the boom and pass the hope. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant, and we're all in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty, and stay vigilant, America. And happy birthday, River! Take me to your river I wanna go Lord, please let me know Take me to your river